0: Hello, and welcome to Red Rock Relationships, a podcast about communication. Let's unpack the relationships that we encounter in our daily lives and learn about what makes them tick. And now your host for Red Rock Relationships, Dr. James B. Stein. All right, we are back with part two of our doubleheader. And uh, if you are watching on video, you'll see that I had a minor wardrobe change, but otherwise... Uh, This could be uh, anytime, at any place, as far as you're concerned. We are continuing our season-long theme of health and the body and how uh, folks in our lives can contribute or perhaps hinder that sort of development. We recently spoke with Dr. Robbie Hall to talk about uh, body positivity and some of the uh, unintentionally toxic elements of that, and now... We're gonna move forward with some more clear cut relationships. Today, we're going to be talking all about uh, patients uh, as well as their caregivers. And uh, to help me do that, is uh, yet another um, UTU faculty member in the communication department, Dr. Shariq Sharwani. Thank you so much for joining.
1: I'm very excited to be here, James.
0: Yeah, Ed, the pleasure is certainly all of ours. And so, since because you're a new guest, uh, we do need to learn a little bit about you. So, if you could just take a moment or two to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, who you are, uh, maybe where your research lies, and 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 how you contribute to the conversation on patients and caregivers.
1: Absolutely. Uh, my name is Sharik Sharwani, and actually I have a PhD in health communication with a secondary specialization in organizational communication with a tertiary specialization in healthcare organizations from um, Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, go Bobcats. Hmm. And um, that was basically, that came into being because for my master's in clinical research management and regulatory affairs at the Ohio State University, I basically conceived of this idea about the stressors that caregivers experience when caring for a loved one with kidney failure because one of my family members that I was dealing with at that time um, had uh, end-stage renal disease or ESRD for short or a fancy term for kidney failure. So I, by default, became a caregiver for my loved one So um, that has been my academic journey, immersed in my personal experiences. And um, after completing my PhD last year, I came at Utah Tech University. I'm very excited to be here and sharing this platform with you.
0: Absolutely. And I, I, I think that the area that you were sort of thrust upon Almost seemingly unintentionally is important because, you know, as as folks in calm know, I mean, uh, many, many people may not know this, but folks in calm know that like one of the big hot button issues, especially, especially after the onset of COVID is health communication. Uh, You know, there are grants and there are journals, special edition of journals and, and, and conferences dedicated to studying health communication. And that's great. And what we find is that from that organizational standpoint, one of the big Areas of study is how patients communicate with their providers, their doctors, their sometimes the, the, the folks who are in charge of their insurance, and we'll we'll actually be talking about that uh, in our next episode. But missing, or you know, as we would call it, there's a research gap in terms of the interpersonal connection that patients have with their caregivers. And so my first question to you is, why do we feel like this particular area of HealthCom is so academically neglected?
1: That's a great question. There are many reasons for it, but I would like to highlight at least three of those. Mm. First of all, um, the reliable data are actually, when I t- when we talk in terms of caregivers, I specifically focus on unpaid caregivers. Mm-hmm. So yes. Caregivers who are by default, they become caregivers because they are a loved one or a family member. And family for me is not just only blood related or through marriage, but people who are in our lives, our aunts and uncles and neighbors and family friends and relatives and people from our religious places and social gatherings. So, um, And we can go into more detail a little bit later as to what qualifies or defines a caregiver, but I specifically study unpaid caregivers. Mm. So the numbers on the unpaid caregivers are very far and f- few in between because there's no reliable and consistent data that's available. Mm. All the data to us come from National um, Alliance on Caregiving or NAC, or knock, and the, but, but but the issue is we do not know who is caring for whom, when, under what conditions, and for how long, because there is no time in and time, uh, time out clock like clock in or clock out. Right. We don't have that. That's one of the major issues, and um, and, and secondly, uh, people just don't report a lot of issues because there's still this some sort of a. A stigma attached to it that I really don't want to be all out and open about the struggles that I have in my personal life vis-a-vis caring for a loved one when it is certain diseases specific people talk about it because my experiences and research talking about cancer people are willing to Um, other health abilities different abilities and disabilities people are willing to but personal hygiene when it comes to uh, bodily functions the human body physiology people that is still kind of like looked down upon mm. just like mental health at one point a few decades ago was right. kind of like a this taboo topic and this taboo subject. So personal hygiene, uh, the pooping and the peeing and all these fluids that we experience and touch and feel and uh, these things happen on a regular basis when you're caring for someone with a chronic illness mm-hmm. can be very overwhelming and not such social conversation pieces. But for a person like me, they're great social conversations. Pieces. I mean, I could I could be dining in a fine restaurant setting. I'd be very comfortable talking talking about body body mm. fluids and all that. And and finally, um, caregivers, um, and this is not culture specific. I have studied beyond the borders of the United States, mm. other cultures as well, vis-a-vis caregiving. This is so this is not a culture-specific thing. Caregivers all around on all across feel unsupported. They feel some some family member or members will take the bigger onus, while others will, and they're equal, they're on equal footing, equally related to the person but others will take less uh role for example and so this becomes an issue about the family dynamics within families as well so these are three major issues as to why we have not really looked deeper into this area but but research like mine and many of my colleagues is, is addressing basically those specific areas
0: that's so interesting especially because uh, so i you know when we talk about why it's neglected like The thing that really struck me there is when you were saying that, like, so you you specified by saying you're not talking about, like, a nurse, right? Someone who's paid to do this. This is a loved one who's uh, doing it out of a sense of altruism or perhaps obligation or whatever the case. And there's no clock in or clock out time. This is constant, right? And so how do you how do you oscillate between caregiver and you know significant other or family member or something like that's very, very uh, interesting and scary in some ways, right? Because if you lose that role and only become caregiver, it can damage the relationship in irreparable ways. So, okay, that kind of leads me into the next thing that, uh, that I wanted to bring up, which is um, from the role of a caregiver, what are some things or what is maybe even just one thing that We can do at the relationship level for somebody who is living with like an illness or an injury, someone who requires your help as a caregiver. How can we or what can we do for that person in a way that builds the relationship without further uh, driving a wedge between the patient and the caregiver?
1: That's, again, a brilliant question. And that is one of the essences of my most recent PhD research, actually. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad you inquired only just one. And I'm very <laughs> happy to provide <laughs> yeah. that, because there's a long list of things that we can do. But I think, because I'm in the communication department, because I do study communications, communication uncertainty is a major issue in in human relationships. Mm-hmm whether it is at the interpersonal level, intercultural level, and we can break it down and parse it in so many different levels. But if somehow we can work on establishing a good communication with our loved one. You know, that can actually address a lot of issues. I designed four interventions, and initially I had a list of 12 interventions. They would have taken about 12 years to complete a PhD, (laughs) or three different PhDs, but I narrowed it down to four. So, you know, the major issue in any relationship, and, and do not for a moment think that someone who's ill or sick or vulnerable, because when we are ill, we all are very vulnerable, no matter how much money we have, what social status or mm-hmm. class we have, and what knowledge and skill level we have, we feel very vulnerable. And specifically those patients, our loved ones who are cognitively all intact they become more challenging to care for because they have their own ideas. Like Somebody, a child uh, may listen to the parent, a small child, or somebody with neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's or Huntington's disease. They may, you know, we can make decisions on the part, but what do you do with a loved one who is, um, you know, who might have kidney failure or may have cancer, but cognitively they are present and all together. So communicate Communication is our savior. Mm. Communication is at the heart of us. It. Communicating, not just making decisions for them uh, on their behalf, becoming their voice, but adding our voice to theirs. It's like an idea of allyship, for example. So, making—I'm—I'm I, not a big proponent of patient-centric decisions or provider-centric decisions, I'm big on collaborative decisions, what I describe as shared decision-making. So making sure that when it comes, for example, one of the interventions I designed was focused on nutrition. What do you do when your loved one is diabetic and obese or has diabetes because of obesity and now their kidneys are failing or they have failed or they are on dialysis three mm-hmm. times a week or they have been lucky to receive a kidney transplant. So given that condition of a loved one, what do you do? So there's always going to be struggle and uncertainty surrounding communication when it comes to planning a nutritious meal on a daily basis and three times a day. So what I basically do and used to do Um, for my loved one, the same thing applies to exercise. Nobody wants to exercise, particularly when you are sick, right? Right, right. We don't have the energy or the level. We feel like, oh my God, I just finished exercising at 11 a.m. Now it's time again to do the exercise all over again. It's only 3 p.m. So we have these struggles. So I I have adopted three uh, approaches. One, for example, talking about nutrition, for example, particularly for a diabetic uh, loved one, You know, I basically talk about or rather communicate about what they would like to eat at least one meal in advance. So the night before, I'll speak with them about breakfast and at after breakfast, I'll speak with them about lunch. After lunch, I'll speak with them about dinner. So at least one meal in advance. Secondly, If if I'm capable enough, if I don't have work or school, if I'm at home with them, uh, then I try to eat meals with them. Now, again, I don't want to appear very privileged. Or, you know, able-bodied, if these situations apply to you, if, if you are able to eat a meal with them, kind of with them, maybe you want to, um, there can be so many different situations where maybe you need to feed the patient. But that's a different story. But let's say the patient is cognitive. Altogether intact, except for having this end renal disease, mm-hmm. you can eat with them. And thirdly, a lot of diabetics still have the sweet tooth, you know. Mm-hmm. So what do you do? That's an added uh, issue with, with 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 planning a nutritious meal for a diabetic. You kind of communicate and negotiate
0: mm. with
1: your loved ones. Like, well, you had you had a muffin at breakfast. Maybe we can do a light Jello. For yeah. lunch, or we can do a non sugary, non carbohydrate, some sort of a dessert, like ice cream at dinner. So, I am not pulling every kind of sugary food away from them, but kind of negotiating. So, negotiating the communication uncertainty that is immersed and embedded in every kind of conversation is really important. Again, finally, this may work for you. This may work for me. It doesn't mean that this may work for everybody. Right, yeah. so we have to we have to tweak and negotiate and make sure that uh, that that these kinds of discussions are also brought to the uh, knowledge of, of our loved ones, uh, healthcare providers as well. Right. So that's really important to keep into account all of these ideas when planning for a meal. Sim- sim- similar things go on for exercise as well.
0: Right. Yeah. I, I I think you make a really good point about like the focus, correct me if I'm wrong, like the focus on humanity, on like the, the human side of like, yeah, we're doing this thing where I care for you and we also share this relationship. And so like, like using communication as a tool to navigate those two identities, that's, that's big. And I think that that's something that people can get into a rut where they're, where they're just living one of those identities now. With that said, speaking of people kind of getting into a rut, um, in our most recent episode prior to this, when we talked a lot about um, body positivity and how it can become toxic, Um, Dr. Hall and I kind of settled on this idea of individual choice and, 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 and doing things on your own as potentially problematic. And I find that That may be true for people um, experiencing chronic illness, that they feel like they need to grapple with their condition on their own. And because of this, they may often push away not only their um, providers, but also their caregivers. So why do you feel like, maybe from the perspective of the caregiver, why do you feel like perhaps people turn down help like that in their most vulnerable of moments?
1: There's so much to parse in that (laughs) question and so much peeling of the onion, so to say. Mm -hmm. And that's a brilliant conceptualization between you and Dr. Hall. And I'm honored to kind of like follow through and follow up on that. Question. And, and you kind of alluded to that because I also am of the same belief that this idea about individualism is immersed in the very American and Western and capitalist ideals of individuality, mm-hmm. right? Wherein, you know, if something good happens, it happened because of me, I did it. If something bad happens, it's because, you know, um, I, it, it's on me and I just. You know, I must deal with it. I mm. The idea of pull, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, for example, this, right. this very American individualistic mentality is there. And and our loved ones who are ill, then they're, they're actually uh, not immune to that. But as I've always said, one of my mantras is just like we have all heard the African saying that it takes a village to raise a child. Mm. I've always said it takes a village to care for a caregiver. for for a loved one. So caregiving does not happen in a vacuum. Um, Caregiving caregiving does not happen in isolation. It really requires a whole army, at least the ideas and ideas of that togetherness, Uh, family members, friends, social support network people. So even though sometimes um, our um, loved one who is ill, they may feel that way, But again, communication is a big element here as well. First of all, we have to convince ourselves that the programs are available. And this is, I really want to emphasize for your audience, there are so many governmental programs, so many non-governmental and not-for-profit programs that are available for the benefit of our patients, of our caregivers, and for the communities in which we live and play and do business with. There is nothing wrong in seeking out those programs in seeking out help from those who have been there before. We are in the trailblazer. We are a trailblazer university. Mm-hmm. When trailblazer area of America, we should not be afraid of trailblazing for the, the needs and the wants and the desires and requirements of caregivers. There should be no, um, no, um, uh, you know, nothing, there's nothing wrong in seeking help as a caregiver because these programs are there for us and we all pay in one way or the other towards these programs which are really immersed in the taxation system in in America. And, you know, so with this idea of body positivity that I can take care of myself, by myself, with my own resources, with my, you know, I wanna stay <laughs> with my home and don't need, help from any, don't, don't need help from anybody, that becomes really toxic and challenging. Just like the idea of, of body negativity, when I teach in my health communication class, one of the chapters, talking about. Somehow, I don't even know when and how, but in the Western context, a thin body has become synonymous with a healthy body, which we all know is not true because of these ideals. We have Illnesses, particularly among our younger generation, also, of course, uh, with with older folks as well. The uh, the issues of um, anorexia, anorexia mm-hmm. nervosa, uh, bulimia, all these eating disorders. So this whole idea that you know I can take care of myself by myself and thin is good and healthy, these are some of the areas that really need to be explored and navigated uh, at an individual level by people who are experiencing those situations, but also by researchers like you and I.
0: Yeah. the thing that strikes me uh, the most about that answer, when we when we talk about kind of things like a, like you know Western exceptionalism and, and individualism and how it can all uh, you know be brought up uh, and 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 together, uh, is is kind of where we want to be. But instead, here at least, we, we push it away. One thing that I really think about is with my students um, and the Disability Resource Center. It's an example of a space in which people are often like, I don't know, embarrassed to, to access the Disability Resource Center. And they say, well, you know, technically I've been diagnosed with this disability, but I don't need anybody's help. I can do it on my own. And it's like your tuition pays for that. And you are owed. I mean, this this was a long conversation that politicians and state officials and university reps had. And they determined that you are owed these benefits uh, or provisions because of a condition that's outside of your control, and so I, I always really specify that to my students. And I think that you make a really good point there uh, at, at, in the in the context of health that uh, it's it's the same thing where we really almost need to recondition ourselves to be okay with with receiving help.
1: Absolutely, because like I said, these are. Uh Programs in any civil society—the mm-hmm. same idea, uh, you know. About fifty years ago, the stigma that was on mental illness and mental mm-hmm. health. Now we know, as a scientist and a communication scholar, I know uh, mental health. There's um, a lot of lot of. Uh, areas of mental health are basically hormonal imbalance, the physiological situations in the mm-hmm. in the brain, for example, or in other you know um, glands that secrete different hormones. All we do is basically, in certain cases, a, a very strict regimen of uh, of medication, and that fixes it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't fix the entire problem, but many of the mental health issues can be addressed physiologically and others to do therapy, but 50 years ago, 70 years ago, we would have easily talked in terms of institutionalization and all that. Mm-hmm. So we have come a long, long ways from those times. And I think talking about the Disability Resource Centers, not only at Utah Tech, which is fantastic, but to other institutions and, and universities as well. These are resources that are available to students. Similarly, these um, caregiving resources are available to the family members mm-hmm. of loved ones who are who are Experiencing temporary or chronic illness. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And and just to, to put a bow, because we're almost out of time, to put a bow on that, we'll talk about mental health in greater detail uh, three or four episodes from now. But the thing that I always think, I think about athletes, like for famous examples, Kevin Loves, Simone Biles, people who pulled out of their competitions because they were experiencing mental health and received backlash for it. And it was ironic because it's like this, this sort of backlash is the exact reason why they are stepping away And you make a really good point in saying, you know, mental health has a stigma of being like, oh, well, you just feel sad today when there really are. You know, physiological things going on and biological things happening in the body that might be happening like with someone who has kidney failure or cancer or something like that. It's just a different part of the body. And so destigmatizing that mental health is, is kind of where we're at now, which is a good thing. And I think that there's a lot to be said about the connection between something like being a caregiver for somebody and acknowledging that sometimes you need to care for somebody who is having a, a, a mental health crisis or a chronic mental health disorder.
1: Absolutely, that's a really really good way of putting it. But just to throw some numbers at our audience, for example, you know, caregivers contribute so much to the to the U.S. economy. People may not realize that these numbers are mind boggling, and I'm talking. Unpaid caregivers mm-hmm. contribute, according to the recent numbers uh from 2018, about more than $260 billion with a B billion dollars wow. to the US healthcare industry. If they all pull down, says, you know, there's no law that says I should be caring for a loved one, I can easily say, No, I'm not going to. They are right. going to become a state issue. The state cannot throw them away somewhere in the field, is going to provide care. Maybe it won't be as good as as a loved one providing the care, but that issue continues when compared to 260. Billion paid nurses pay um, or contribute. 83 billion. Wow. You see the difference. And paid home health aides contribute only 32 billion. So just 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 saying how much the caregivers, unpaid caregivers, contribute to the U.S. healthcare economy.
0: Wow, what a note to end on. That is amazing. And next week we'll be talking about those those providers, uh, with Rob Matheny, who will be making another appearance. But until then, uh, I'll see you all later. Thank you. You've been listening to Red Rock Relationships, a podcast about communication. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time. If you'd like to be on the show or have questions for us, please send us an email to redrockrelationships at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Just search Red Rock Relationships. Thank you again. And remember, it all begins with good communication.